Welcome to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us on this particular show for the first time is fellow Bureau 42 contributor, Mr. Brian Rollins. Welcome aboard, Brian. Thanks for having me. Those who've been listening for a long time may have heard Brian's voice on the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament podcast that crop up occasionally in the Bureau 42 Master audio feed when we discussed the original Star Trek, J.J. Uh, Abrams reboot. That was a lot of fun to do. That was right before uh, Into Darkness came out, so it was, uh, it's been a while. It has been, and frankly, I went back to try and re-listen to it, and I just felt like going back and re-editing the whole thing, because I've learned much more about how to make a clean-sounding podcast. The content is great, but the audio quality is not what I would want it to be today. Well, if, if the inter- internet serves for nothing else, it's, it's a great way to, to capture our embarrassing moments from our past and, and let them live forever. Oh, yes. But in any event, we are around today for actually a highly you know, technology-driven story arc. We are looking at Iron Man Extremis, the six-issue story arc that kicked off the fourth volume of Iron Man in 2005, written by Warren Ellis, with computer-generated art by Adi Granoff, lettered by Randy Gentil. Assistant editors were Andy Schmidt, Nicole Wiley, Molly Lazar, and Aubrey Sitterson at various points in it. Some of them were there for the whole thing, some were not. The main editor was Tom Brevoort, and this was published under Editor-in-Chief Joe Casada. The cover dates for these six issues span from January 2005 to May 2006, and release dates range from November 10th, 2004 to March 29th, 2006. Came in at point number 29 in the countdown. So from there, we might as well do a bit of a plot synopsis, because that's actually, I think, closely tied with the continuity-based significance of this. It was... And as we said, it's launching volume four. It's the beginning of a new era. And it's an era for Iron Man that lasted for quite a while. But essentially, it comes down as even thematically, it's explicitly stated right there in the comic, the Iron Man armor is starting to be outdated. There's a technology called Extremis, which essentially upgrades humans on a biological level. So it's not something that's added to them. It's something that outright rewrites and replaces internal organs and neural pathways and everything to make these people better people or custom people for doing specific jobs. It's very risky, but the technology has fallen into the hands of some terrorist groups or anti-government agencies, and they've sent someone who has serious issues with the government out into the wild with this. Tony's called in by a colleague of his that he knew some years ago to deal with it. Iron Man shows up on the scene and gets beaten down rather quickly and decisively. And really, the only way Tony has to survive is to take the extremis himself and upgrade himself as the Iron Man. Yeah, this, I mean, it's, it's important to note, too, for, for people that don't follow along with the, with the comics that, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this, this pretty much re, kind of, this is a retcon for his origin story, too. We get some flashbacks during the, the series, or during this arc, to him in... Uh, Oh, now I'm going to forget. It's uh, a Persian Gulf War, and that's where he ends up actually being injured instead of being uh, it, it being uh, Vietnam, as it was in the 60s. So that new origin story is what we get to see in the movies. Mm-hmm. And this also rewrites it so that he and uh, Ho Yinsen had met prior to their captivity in the Gulf. So there are some tweaks, but most of them are, are necessary. I mean, it's not the first time his origin has been tweaked. As Brian said, mm-hmm. when he was first created... It was during the Vietnam War, 
the challenge that Stanley set to himself was to make people like someone that pop culture told them that they should hate, right? So let's make a capitalist warmonger arms dealer who is in full support of the Vietnamese War and make him the hero. Later, it was retconned that he wasn't in Vietnam and suffered the injuries when the war was going on. He was in there afterwards as part of a peacekeeping force to find and clean up a lot of the mines that had been left behind. And it was one of these landmines that had gone off after the war was over. So, but those, as I said, the options are change the details of his origin mm-hmm. in a manner like that, or write Tony Stark so he's in his 80s. Yeah, it's, it's always the, the, the challenge for, for these characters since they, you know, they don't actually age. You know, it's, it's, it's like the Simpsons where they just, you know, they're, they're perpetually that, that age. Um, and how do you, you know, you just kind of have to reinvent it. And, you know, fortunately for Marvel, you know, the, the U.S. manages to get itself involved in some conflict or other every decade or two. So, you know, there's plenty of uh, fuel. So I'm sure in 20, 30 years, it'll be something else that, that Tony Stark got, got, got involved with. The, it allows him to be sort of evergreen and, and, it, and it works. It doesn't, I mean, they don't make it the, the main part of the plot. They just kind of throw it in, just kind of reintroduce the character and simply you know the the method the the concept st- still stays the same it's he's injured by his own weapons you know the he's you know, he's hoisted on his own petard quite literally mm-hmm. and so he's you know it it changes who he is and 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 how he perceives uh, the world and um i think it's in the very first issue he spends i think they spend a good three or four pages just him being interviewed by a documentary filmmaker mm-hmm. really you know just simply kind of digging in this, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly, you know, I'm, I'm going to say he's kind of a, a liberal uh, filmmaker, you know, a la Michael Moore. So basically, yeah, you get the, this idea where, where he, he agrees to be interviewed, even though he knows he's going to get kind of torn apart, you know, and, but it, it was, it's, it's, a neat, it's a neat little piece because he's, in the end, he kind of flips the interview around. It's like, you know, because the interviewer's like, well, you're, are you really making a difference? And Tony Stark asks the interviewer, well, you've made all these movies and the media loves you and the liberal press loves you. But nobody, you know, the ma- the mainstream, um, you know, of America doesn't even know who you are. Have you made a difference? And so they're they're kind of in the same boat, coming at a problem from this from two different angles. Uh, so it was actually yeah. it was actually it it doesn't do a lot. For, I mean, it does do a little bit for the story. It's not action oriented. It's just two guys, you know, sitting here doing an interview. It, it's a good piece of writing that that kind of elevates the the concept and and. You sort of see a nod to that in the first Iron Man movie when he's he's being interviewed by the the girl, but in the end, it just becomes and she becomes another conquest in the film versus it being an actual moving plot point. Yeah, well, she's also the only one who stays seated at the end when he says, "I am Iron Man." Mm-hmm. But uh, this is actually a good time to point out as any that at the time this was published, this was almost re- indicative of the way the comic buying public viewed Iron Man. This was a couple years prior to his film this so this was coming out right when mm-hmm. the pre-production motor and the, you know the pre-production gears on iron man were just starting to get rolling so that's why marvel went out for top talent like warren ellis to put on here and most fans are going really warren ellis and iron man because he was viewed as probably top of the b-list kind of character like mm-hmm. he was one of the founding avengers yeah but it had been a long time since iron man's solo adventures were considered central to the marvel universe and he was considered a proper character and this was a time where by and large, if you did not read comics, you did not know who Iron Man was. Right? The only association you made with Iron Man was either a triathlon or a Black Sabbath song. Exactly. This helped change that. 
Yeah, and it, it it's yeah, it, it it kind of acknowledges yeah, he's aging, he's getting on in years, um, or at least the the armor is. And it's sort of a, a metaphor for 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 the character itself because he's kind of a he is sort of a you know a, yeah he's he's a war profiteer he's a he's an he's a weapons manufacturer you know and especially you know in, in the time period I mean we still and this was published late two thousand five so you know things like the the nine eleven attacks are still still fresh in our minds the the war in Afghanistan the war in Iraq is is still fresh and people are you know it's it's four years after nine eleven and we're and I think. Americans are starting to get tired of it. It's like, what do we really need to be here? Do we really need to fight this fight again? And, you know, and, and you're right, that, that makes a character like Tony Stark kind of not real popular. Yeah. And that a lot of that was the reinvention that they had here. And that's part of that interview that you mentioned, the, the Michael Moore style character was just to call him out on that. And it's like, well, hey, you made your money doing this. And you see Tony's defense, which is, well, he's like, the goal was never to create weapons. That was just a means to the end because those are the deepest pockets to get the biggest research to mm-hmm. get the most development. But it doesn't change the fact that he did make and sell weapons. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I don't, and I don't think they they talk about it, but you know it's, that's similar to you know what happens like World War II. It was a huge leap forward technologically for a lot of a lot of technologies mm-hmm. get invented during World War II solely for the purpose of you know either killing people or trying to keep people from being killed. So that you know there's there's sort of that mix, um, but. You know, he's he's definitely got that, you know, that dark history where he's like, okay, how do I flip this around? How do I make this, you know, they, they do talk about, it, you know, dealing with Maya, who's a, you know, she's she's the voice from the past for him that, you know, when they were still, when he was young and still an idealist and she's a, you know, bio, you know, she's a biologist and being able to, to you know, call that back and say, what are you doing? And, and you know, where where have you come from and where where is he going? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. And even beyond that, this is a story that has an impact, not just on the comic industry, but beyond it. We've already alluded to some of it. This was prior to the film. I don't remember whether this or Chuck Austin's War Machine came first, but those were two of the earliest comics with completely computer-generated interiors. Now, this one was kind of experimental. And Chuck Austin had his completed and handed in. This was completely computer-generated, but done in a style to resemble pencil work. So it it looks like an artist could have created it by hand, even though they didn't. And that is actually a big part of the reason that it took so long to get these six issues published. They gave themselves a lot of lead time because Marvel knew this was coming, and Adi Gradoff was doing this when it hadn't been done before. So even the the technology that Gradoff was using was not the same technology that Chuck Austin used for his War Machine miniseries. So, you know, Gradoff figured, well, you know, there's gonna be a lot of initial time creating the models for all the characters and creating the environments. But once those are made, he expected the later issues to come more quickly. And that was a reasonable assumption for everyone. Everyone went in with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. But Granoff has stated afterwards that, yeah, it was late because of him. He overestimated the amount of time it took to create the models and underestimated the amount of time it took to pose and set up the shots and the camera angles. So that's why this got stretched out so long. It just took that long to produce the art. And Marvel decided, no, this is quality stuff. We would rather keep this team together and ship late than do fill-in artists and ship on time, which is that Catch-22 situation. The fortunate side of that is that when you're reading it in trade paperback or any other collected edition, and you're reading it after the fact, you do get a consistent look through the entire story, and it's a very good look. When they were putting the movie together, and John Favreau asked people, you know, what's your favorite Iron Man armor? Which version do you want to see on the big screen if it can only be one? Mm-hmm. The overwhelmingly 
uniform response was Eddie Granoff, and they wanted his version. And Favreau was just, you know, his attitude was, oh, this is fantastic. Granov did all of his stuff with CGI, so he just hired him to consult directly with the CGI team to design the armor in the films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, I think some of the early the early posters for the Iron Man movie, a lot of people just simply thought it was re- they were recycling some of the extremist covers because they looked so similar in in terms of, of the look and feel. And and I I loved it. And I'm trying which issue it is. There's a great shot because when they like I said they call it, they do those callbacks to his origin story. There's one shot of him in the Mark One armor, which and I had to go look it up in my omnibus collection, and it is a basically identical shot from the 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 comic book from the like issue one of the the mark one armor they did this this great homage to uh the originals but it's all yeah like you said it's all cg so it's colored it looks you know it, it looks a little you know it matches the style but the pose these in and the shot is exactly the same as i think from like issue one. Oh yeah the tales of suspense 39 mm-hmm. yeah so yeah, it's like right out of, you know, almost right out of the Tales of Suspense. And it's it, as, as soon as I saw that, I was like, that's awesome. You know, so oh, yeah. it's a great shot because it's like you could easily tweak it, make him look a little bit more realistic like they did in the in the film. The Mark One looks like something that you cobble together in a in a cave in Afghanistan versus that's got a clean, you know, it's got that clean retro sci-fi look to it. I, I had to say that was kind of an, a neat way for them to call back to the original and i'm sure most fans that picked it up probably didn't even notice it and i'm just as soon as i and i think the first time i read it i didn't catch it and then but it, i think that's the cover of the the collected issues and that i've got that my son's absconded with in his in his room and like there's worse things that he could be reading in his room right mm-hmm. but that that was a, a neat little uh callback to the uh the original okay all right yeah so that's that's the nutshell in terms of the impact this had uh the extremists was a part of Tony Stark for years. It has since been removed, and a lot of people weren't happy with it because the way in which it was removed didn't seem consistent with the way it was introduced to him. But for years, he did have the extremis, so he was able to control not just the Iron Man armor, but other similar equipment with a thought, which turned out to be a fairly major plot point in terms of the story arc of Happy Hogan during the Civil War crossover issues. Mm-hmm. Now, Brian, how did you first get exposed to this story? trying to remember i th- i'm it may have been the when the, when i got the the dvd collection i'm trying to remember or i think i may have read a couple of the issues when they first came out cuz i remember hearing everybody kind of going nuts over it's like oh my god iron man is so much is so cool again and so i kind of picked those up but i kind of went through them again i think i went through them when i got this dvd set and then again right before the first iron man movie came out so 2008ish it was a was a neat way to to look at it and and figure, but it was neat to see yeah the, the new origin kind of comes up. It was one of my, kind of my my first impression. I, I mean I loved it. I loved the the new the new take on Stark and and being able to you know kind of flip his character around and and change kind of his motivations. And then I'm trying to think of how the, the domestic terrorism thing was was. I'm trying to think this would have been this would have been probably. I mean, definitely the post 9-11, so you had Battlestar Galactica kind of attacking, you know, approaching terrorism from a different perspective. But this this really kind of was a neat way to put it into perspective. And Ed, I don't think I caught it the first time through, but it it's and maybe it's the movies that kind of bring it up. It just seems like knowing more about the, the whole Marvel universe, it seems like everything comes back to that super soldier serum. It seems like a lot of 
a lot of uh, a lot of the stories seem to revolve around it, and maybe it's just the movies that. But it's just you know that was one of the things that this this extremist virus was supposed to be was yet another attempt to to duplicate the infamous super soldier serum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that has been a running theme in the comics for a while. I think probably the man thing was the the first example I would say of that playing into a story outside of the pages of Captain America because that was the creation of the man thing was again Ted Sells trying to reproduce the super soldier serum. Mm-hmm. Which does make sense. I mean, if there was a process that effective, you would expect the military to want to reproduce it mm-hmm. or somebody else. It's technology is changing now. We are finally at the point where we can essentially fight wars without putting people, or at least on the attacking side, mm-hmm. in harm's way. Yeah, it's, it seems to be uh, everybody seems to be trying to re- kind of recreate it and, and reinvent it. And at some point, you think they'll learn their lesson, but now they never seem to learn that, you know, it's, it's, and I think they, they talk about, because Tony and Maya go and meet their sort of the, 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 the hippie in the woods, shaman, wiseman, uh, Sal, who, you know, talks, you know, they, they spend probably a good, I'd say another three or four pages, maybe even more, you know, just discussing bioethics and, and the ethics of what they're doing and what Tony's doing and what Maya's doing. Yeah, it's, it's probably more than three or four pages looking at it in the issue too. Yeah. It's just hard to gauge because it is intercut with the attack by the terrorist as well. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's uh, and that was the, I love that the the way they do that. They kind of interject, you know, the flashbacks and the the terrorist attacks are going on while dialogue's happening. You know, we're we're still following the conversation that Tony's having or Maya's having or some, you know, different characters are having while we get to watch action going on and and get to watch the the, the juxtaposition of what they're saying versus what's going on. Mm-hmm. And this is, I believe it's Sal who points out that, yeah, Tony, your biggest fear is becoming obsolete. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really happening with Extremis. The Iron Man armor is now obsolete and it is no longer up to the task of dealing with the threats that are posed. I mean, Warren Ellis is a very well-known writer in comics for many reasons. And his ability to to structure and cut back and forth in this scene is one of them. Mm-hmm. It's extremely well-structured. Now, how much of that is Ellis and how much of that is Ellis saying, this is the kind of thing I want and ha- it off or passing it off to Adi Granov mm-hmm. to finish the job? I don't know. With comics, it's always tough to tell what's actually the writer and what's the artist, which is why there's a very strong case to be made for credits like Mark Wade and Chris Somney were using on the latest Daredevil, where it's not writer and penciler or these are the co-plotters, mm-hmm. this is the scripter and the penciler. They just say storytellers mm-hmm. and both names are together. It's a very nice way to do it. Yeah. It's one of those things you can't accomplish in a in a straight up book, and, and even in a, a film and television, just doesn't work very well. But in a in a in this medium, it works wonderfully, and you can kind of do that. Whereas if you did this in film, it'd just be kind of cheesy voice, you know, voiceover narration while a, you know actions going on, and it doesn't quite work. And so yeah, it is something that's particular to this medium. It's uh, you know, it's one of those you know, it's very artistic. It's very. Um, you know, it's a great way of, of conveying, you know, you've got a, a great way of being able to say, look, you know, here's, here's what's going on. Rather than bog you down in, in dialogue, we're going to show you some action and juxtapose it with, you know, dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. As I said, it is fairly, it's fairly compelling. It is well done. I am actually quite happy with it. And I'm glad I did eventually getting around to reading it. I mean, I was also reading it for the first time off this DVD ROM. I never did pick up the paper copies. And frankly, I don't think I even got around to it until after the movie had come out and I enjoyed it. And I was coming home thinking, oh man, I, I want to read some Iron Man. 
after seeing that movie, wonder what I should read. Oh, well, here. This is a recent storyline that people have been raving about. So I picked it up and read from there to the end of the DVD, because with that, I picked up every Civil War crossover and stuck around with Iron Man after Civil War. So mm-hmm. that finished off the volume. Yeah. And this, yeah, this, this leads, yeah, this definitely sort of sets the, the groundwork for Tony and his, you know, his under his, you know, his fear that, you know, these, these pieces, this, you know, the extremists and different things, these can go rogue so easily. You know, it's just a syringe is insanely portable, you know, and that, that becomes a, you know, dangerous thing. And Iron Man three for its, you know, its flaws is, you know, it's one of the pieces that it really carried off was that it's, you know, when you make, make the person, the weapon, you make the person, the bomb, how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you stop that? I mean, most everybody, you know, when you, when you go through civil war and it's like, it's, it's really, you know, well, of course we're supposed to side with Captain America and that's, you know, doing the right thing. But you, you read through this and you realize that Tony's got a point, you know, Stark has a, has a, has a justifiable fear, but then again, you know, fears have driven, driven us to do stupid things throughout history. So yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's conceivable and and it's, it starts off with, you know, issue one is, is. Oh, this character's name's going to elude me again. Killian. He became the. He actually became the the main villain in in Iron Man Three. He's actually just kind of a a a, a quick one off character in in Extremis, but he's the one that you know that, that instigates. He's the one that leaks the the virus out to the terrorist group in the first place. You know, so he's he's acknowledging that you know he's created something truly horrible and and, and you know takes his own life as a result. It's, you know, they're, they're already saying right off the gate that this is some pretty horrible stuff. Oh, yeah. That's one of the things I've noticed. I mean, if we shift to the part of the podcast that I've so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everybody out there should be listening to. They're doing great stuff. I mean, one of the things that they do is look at the messages, morals, and meanings of every episode or movie of Star Trek and say, is there a moral or something you could take away? And for something that's, it's an enjoyable action piece. And that's all I saw it at was really the first time I read it. But the more I read it, and especially rereading it for this podcast, where I had this in mind, Warren Ellis has a number of social issues laid out here. And he doesn't pretend to have the answers to these complex mm-hmm. issues, but he does actually a very good job of presenting both sides, not just in the conversation we've mentioned with the Michael Moore style filmmaker in issue one, but also the point counterpoint with Sal in issue two. And then in you know, even further detail in issue six, where we learn how Killian, who he's commit suicide early on for releasing Extremis, you know, we learn he couldn't have done it alone. And when we see who else was involved and why they did what they did, mm-hmm. right, we're getting into more themes about, you know, again, do the ends justify the means? What are we doing? And, you know, how much are we willing to burn strangers for personal gain? Yeah, he's, there's a lot of, and I'm, you know, looking at, which one? I think it's issue two, where he's Tony's having a, the meeting with his board, you know, his board of directors, where he's talking about, you know, we've got to, you know, they're, you know, it's like it's got to be more, it's got to be more, you know, the the phone that they're, which looks extraordinarily out of date now, but you know, the the idea that you know he's created this perfect cell phone, and you know the, you know, how do we make this military? How do we do this? The the conflict that. The, the board of directors is are they're trying to shove him out. They're trying to move him out of the way because he wants to be able to not go the military route. He wants to be able to to produce civilian goods and and the board of directors is like, but the money's in the military. You know, the the money's the money's in in bombs and guns and the corporate ethics of that now, you know, is 
is there anyone in 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 the corporate world that behaves like this? You'd be hard pressed to find them, but you know he's 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 bringing that up as 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 uh, you know do do companies have a moral uh, not a moral authority but more responsibility? There's the word I'm looking for. You know to do the right thing. Well, yeah, and that's addressed head on. Now, again, as you said, the the phone that they have here it is out of date compared to now. I mean, this is 2005. They're talking about how they're going to make Nokia afraid. Yeah, I know. And their position in the cell phone market. Yeah. And it, you know, when this issue was published in December of 2004, that was the right company to name. Mm-hmm. These days, you know, making Nokia scared means yeah. you're in the market. <laughs> like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Nokia phones. No. They're still about as good as the non-smartphone can get. Right. But smartphones are ruling the market these days. Exactly. But it, it's still, I mean, it's, it's, it's 10 years on, and, and the story still holds up really pretty well. I mean, the story definitely holds up extremely well. Um, and a lot of the technology still, I mean, the, the nanotechnology, the, you know, the, the, the bioengineering, those pieces, those questions, like you said, yeah, the, he, he throws you the questions, but he doesn't, you know, give you an answer, which is, which is great, because I think, you know, all, far too often the, the writer or director or producer or whoever is going to shove you, you know, whatever answer they, they want to give you an answer. And, and sometimes the best, the best stories and the best media don't give you a, a good answer. You know, there's, you know, we, we, before we were recording, we were talking about, you know, different Star Trek things and, and how, you know, we both love DS9 so much. Um, there are several episodes of DS9 that kind of end that way that they just, they end with, <laughs> well, this is this, this is where we're at. There's no happy answer. And mm-hmm. so uh, it, I think, yeah, this one kind of wraps up with, you know, Tony makes a decision, a pretty rash decision. You know, when I, when I was rereading it, I'm like, wow, it's like in retrospect, it's like, you're just going to just go ahead and, you know, inject yourself with this stuff, you know, it, but, you know, it, it's, it's pretty rash, but it, it shows, you know, it comes, it, it shows his desperation. He's, he's desperate to, to find a solution. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like, are you, are you willing, you know, to, to go through that? Are you willing to, you know, what sacrifices are you willing to make? But I'm not entirely certain if he's making this as a sacrifice or it's just simply his, his ego that he doesn't want to be, have, uh, be bested. I think Maya, I think it's Maya at several points, or at least at one or two points where she says, you know, call in the Avengers. And he's like, no, I got this. I'm going to take care of it myself, which, you know, kind of is necessary for the story because he just, you just want this to be an Iron Man story. But it also kind of shows that, and I don't know how, how you took it, but I, I kind of took it as him being, you know, it's a part of his ego. He doesn't want to call in for, he doesn't want to call for backup. Damn it. I'm not asking for directions. Kind of, kind of, uh, kind of an idea that he's, he's going to handle this on his own. And he makes a pretty rash decision in the end to defeat um, Malin in the end. And it's really kind of, you know, it's kind of telling that he's, he's just, he's, he's, he's either desperate or his, his ego's blinded him to more sane options. Yeah, and I I took it as ego as well, especially with I think his lack of sufficient reason to leave the Avengers out of it. Because she's right, you know, someone like Thor could smack him down immediately. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Iron Man chose to do it himself, which is that's one of the drawbacks of having a shared universe, right? You've got a solo character in a solo book. You don't want that character to be calling in their buddies to help out mm-hmm. and do the job, right? You know, come do my job for me, kind of thing doesn't really work. You do need to showcase this character, or at least give a good reason why this character is doing it on their own. Mm-hmm. Ellis hit it right on. It's not. It may be a poor decision, but from a t- storytelling perspective, it's not a bad 
decision to write into it. It doesn't feel awkward. It doesn't feel out of place. It feels like, no, Tony needs to prove to himself that he can handle this and that he is still relevant and that he hasn't been deprecated and and -hmm. been put out of date. Well, and and that's critical for, for especially Tony Stark, who is the self-made man. He's sort of the iconic, whereas Captain America is, you know, truth, justice, the whole, you know, Boy Scout motif. Tony Stark is the, I built myself up from everything that I am and everything that I built is I built with my own two hands, so to speak. So he's sort of that, that I think somebody made a, you know, made a reference that, you know, the, the Iron Man movies are sort of an ode or an homage to Ayn Rand, where it's, you know, he's this, he's the ultimate Ayn Rand character. And I don't quite see that, but I see some of that where it's, you know, the, the, the self-made man and, and it makes it important for him to make that, that choice. That's like, I'm not going to call in Thor. I'm not going to call in Captain America. I'm going to deal with this myself, but he does make, you know, kind of makes that, that rash decision. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I think that's a lot of it. It's, you know, we see in that case, it's the, the risk of ego going unchecked because how much of this collateral damage could have been avoided if he had called the Avengers? We see, do the ends justify the means with what these other characters are doing, you know, and, you know, especially when you find out the true motives behind the release of Extremis into the wild, Mm -hmm. because they were not ideological. And it's something that we only get in the last couple of pages. So I'm hesitant to spoil it here. Yeah. I want yeah, it's, it's, it's very easy to spoil because there are, I mean, I read it through and then I read it again over the weekend and there are hints in the very beginning and very in issue one as to who the second person is. Once I read it again, I'm like, oh, he's dropping some hints right, right there at the very beginning. You know, who's, who's the second, you know, who's, who's the co-conspirator on this, which is great. Cause you know, the, if you're, if you're paying attention, it, it shouldn't catch you off guard too, too much. So I think we covered most of it, except why we think it landed at this point in, you know, in the countdown. And it's when we do this, we always look at the three main factors, right? We look at entertainment value, Mm -hmm. which is definitely here in spades. Mm -hmm. As I said, if you don't want to look for deeper meanings, you want to just look for a fun Iron Man action story, this fits the bill. You know, the second, you know, we look at the impact it had on the industry or continuity, and it's not, you know, first appearance or death of major characters or anything like that, but this is definitely the start of a new and distinct chapter in the history of Iron Man. This was, you know, sort of a, a soft reboot. Some people could probably mm-hmm. call it. We are redefining what Iron Man is and how he goes. And there is meat to it. We've got those deeper meanings if you want to look at it in terms of is war profiteering justified if it's the means to a greater ends? Do the ends justify the means? You know, when should we call for help? When should we do it ourselves? It, it, you know, this feels like Tony's midlife crisis all wrapped up into one. Everything he's ever had to deal with is in these six issues. Exactly. Yeah. I I I'd have to say the only the only knock that I had against it when I when I was rereading it was the villain you've got you've got Malin who's he's I mean he's got an interesting backstory that they do finally kind of reveal some of it but in the end he's just a random angry white guy so sometimes some of the best stories are when the you know especially with Marvel they do an excellent job of of creating sympathetic villains you know it's mm-hmm. it's not hard to see why Magneto does what he does He's he's trying to protect his people, and you know his methods are a little questionable. Yeah. Whereas whereas Malin, it's just he just seems like he's just a uh, an angry guy that just you know gets superpowers. But then again, I guess you could argue that that's you know when superpowers come in a syringe, that giving it to just random angry white guy fits because anybody could have it. So extremists could be given to Stephen Hawking 
just as easily as, as, as this guy. There's an interesting story for you. Superpowered Stephen Hawking. And I don't think he comes to, you know, obviously, comic books, nobody's ever really dead. But, you know, they, they do a pretty thorough job of killing, you know, Malin off in the end. Yeah, and I think the fact that he is primarily one-dimensional here means he's going to stay dead for a while. Right. I mean, he's the first extremist patient, but it's really the extremist that defined him more than his backstory, which, as you said, we do eventually learn. I could see them bringing extremist villains back into play. I don't see them bringing Malin specifically back. Right. Yeah, because there's nothing really... I mean, he has one... There's one scene... They give him kind of a a, a quick scene somewhere in the middle where he's talking to a, a, a teenager and kind of going into into his politics, but that's about it. You're really not treated to a whole lot of, of who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. But then again, it may not, it, it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's not. And like I said, it, it could just simply be that what they were going for is that, you know, when you put superpowers in a, in a, you know, uh, in a syringe that, that, you know, that it could be anybody. It could be, it could be Steve Rogers or it could be this guy. Oddly fitting that some of the ads during the, the, in the comics are for uh, Incredibles. So when everyone has super, you know, when everyone's special, then nobody is. Yeah. All right. So do you have any final thoughts on the story? I, just that, I mean, I, I, I really, it's a, it's a really good set. It's a great set to have. It's a great way to sort of, if you're unfamiliar with Iron Man, it's a great way. To, it's a good starting point that, you know, they, like you said, it's a soft reboot. You know, it, it changes his origin story, but not significantly. The The meat of it is still the same, and he's still the same. You know, the, the, the rationale for who and what he's doing is uh, is the same. It's a great way to get in. And it, it gave us some, a great, some great pieces for both uh, the first and third Iron Man movies. Like you said, he was the top of the B list so that, you know, when Marvel decided to create a, you know, this sort of kicked up, I think, you know, they were probably talking about doing Iron Man movies. and. And when the this hit and it it got such great uh, great sales and and great critical response that it probably you know pushed uh, the the first Iron Man movie out the you know out of the nest so to speak, which really is kind of what led to the whole you know the the whole cinematic universe. So I don't know if we can credit just this piece for for what we have today, but it's definitely a big part of it and uh, you know reshaping. Tony Stark and, and giving us a lot of things. So it's, it's a great piece to, to look at. It's, you know, it's not, it's, it's self-contained, which is a lot of times, you know, I, I, I'm hit and miss when it comes to comics. And there's a lot of times I'll try and pick stuff up and it's like, oof, I'm pretty lost. I was, I was, I was super excited when they came out with like the ultimates line. Cause I was like, oh, cool. I can start over and I don't have to worry about it too much. But this one is, is self-contained. Even in, you don't really need to know anything about Iron Man, but most fans, obviously people listening to this are going to know, you know, more stuff than, than you and I, but they're going to, but it's a great way to, to kind of, it was a great reboot of, of Iron Man and it was a, and it's a, it's a great, great arc by itself. Oh, very much so. It's easy to recommend. Uh, so before we go, I just want to thank Brian for joining us. And if you want to take a moment to let people know where they could find your other stuff. Sure. So uh, my website is uh, thevoicesinmyhead.com. Aside from, you know, occasionally writing reviews on Bureau, the Bureau, I do narrate audiobooks. The latest one I just did uh, is actually a sci-fi thriller called Shatterpoint. So uh, if you want to check out my site, you can uh, link to those and heck, you know, send me an email or drop me a line from there. Um, I can hook you up with a free copy since, uh, you know, if you're a listener to the, to the podcast, I've got uh, I've got some free ones to listen to. So I'm always uh, always eager to hear, uh, you know, get uh, new listeners and uh, 
and uh, check it out. Uh, and then I think I'm also, I'll be narrating for Pseudopod later this month. I've done a few others of those. So if you like short, short fiction, short horror stories, you can listen. Uh, I've done a few episodes of Pseudopod. So, uh, but I'm, I'm out and about and around. And uh, if not, you can always find me on the Bureau42.com for uh, usually writing anything and everything that has to do with Star Trek uh, for the site. Okay. Now, for those of you who are reading along at home, you could join us next week when we discuss Spider-Man Blue. It's a six-issue miniseries that's been collected in a, you know, in trade paperback form titled Spider-Man Blue. And it's also available through both Marvel Digital Limited and Comixology. You can rate this and any of the shows that you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you, you happen to use. It really does help the shows get noticed. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.